everyone to Sources, Kane Academy's podcast on history and culture. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. In this episode, I interviewed Joe Wood, research and seminar fellow with Kane Academy. You might like to know that Joe had a distinguished career in the Air Force and in intelligence, including high-level work in the White House. This past year, Joe completed his doctorate in political philosophy at the Catholic University of America. He's been a professor at the Institute of World Politics. All these things combine to make for a remarkably experienced scholar in the field of politics. So I thought it was high time to interview my good friend and colleague, Joe Wood. He and I recently met up at the Kane Academy headquarters in Falls Church, Virginia. Well, welcome everyone to the Kane Academy. I'm sitting across the table with my good friend and Kane Academy's senior fellow, Joe Wood. Good morning, Joe. Morning. Yeah, great to see you. Thanks. Great to be here. And uh, congratulations are a little overdue. Uh, we're having this conversation a few months after the fact, but congratulations, Joe, on completing your doctorate at the Catholic University of America. Well, thank you. Uh, the, if the congratulations are overdue, the, the doctorate's even more overdue since this was a midlife project. So. Uh, well, uh, kudos to you, man. I, I know uh, most of us could not pull that off uh, at our age, and uh, it's, a, it's a great triumph. So why don't you share with our, our listeners a little bit about your research and uh, the well, project the, uh, you worked on. The Catholic University School of Philosophy is a history of philosophy program, and so the coursework that I worked on had to do uh, with all the range of history of philosophy. My dissertation was on Pierre Menant. As you know, he's a political theorist and a contemporary, still living French political philosopher very, very widely respected, and in fact, he's uh, in many ways the one who is prior to and behind and above the current conversation that's going on about the nation. There are a lot of conferences now discussing what the nation is, how important it is, and that's uh, really in some ways attributable to Menon, who's been working on this for his lifetime. He's a, a student of politics, he's really a student of man. And he sees uh, politics as the privileged window into what it is to be human. And so he works primarily on political form, which is the broadest way that we think of organizing ourselves for common action, for common good. Uh, the city of Athens and Sparta, the empire, mainly the Roman Empire, but the, uh, it's the, whereas the city is limited, the empire seeks to bring as much of humanity under it as it can. He calls the Catholic Church a political form, but a strange one. It's uh, mainly there as an influence on what ultimately was the political form most suitable for Europe, which is the nation. And finally, the modern state, which follows the nation uh, in the political development of Europe. And Menon's an interesting guy. He takes a twofold approach. He's not just a political theorist. He reads a lot of political philosophy. But before, during, and after the political philosophy, he looks very hard at political history. It's what has actually happened. And so the, the work that he does is very concrete. So that distinction between the nation and the modern state, I think that's that's a difficult distinction, or it's one that doesn't occur to, to most of us. Can you, can you explain that? Sure. The, the nation begins with the Christian kings in Europe. The cities weren't doing terribly well as political uh, entities, particularly northern Italy, which is where most of the big cities were at that point. And the Roman Empire failed. And there was no real political theory after Cicero, at least according to Manon. There's nothing to tell you what to do. In the meantime, you have this uh, extraordinary force of the Catholic Church, the Christian Church, which is now in existence, and doesn't especially want to govern people on a daily basis, but it has a tremendous interest in 
politics because political decisions of rulers affect the salvation of souls. And that's where the church wants to be involved, to say, here's what you can do or here's what you can't do in broad terms about uh, politics, what affects souls. So the nation winds up being the response to the absence of any other workable political form. As we go through time and through the centuries, the nation is certainly still with us. Most people in Europe know that they are Swedish or Croatian or German or whatever it happens to be. And in America, we know that we're Americans. But the modern state develops out of the nation when politics essentially becomes devoid of any sort of moral position. In other words, the the nation accepted and professed the Catholic faith or or after the Reformation, the Protestant faith. Uh, The modern state says, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to be, in a sense, above all of that. And we will regulate the economy to be free or to be prosperous as we want. We will do other things, but we do it from a morally neutral, scientific standpoint. The result of that, Manon thinks, is that in the modern state, what really happens is that we enthrone human will. We become basically what, not just what the king was before, but what God was before. And we eventually want to get to the point where all we really are as humans is bearers of rights. All we are is people who want our rights. Uh, A lot of listeners have probably read de Tocqueville. And de Tocqueville talks about two simultaneous trends that occur in politics during times of equality, which de Tocqueville saw in America and thought was coming to Europe in the, in the 19th century. And those two trends are simultaneously a desire for more and more personal space, in other words, more and more rights to do whatever you want to do, and simultaneously a desire for a large central power in government that will ensure that you have those rights and that your neighbors don't infringe on them. And so Manon would argue that we've lost something about what it is to be human. We've lost this diversion of diversity of activity that really is what marks the human, uh, the human being. And we've lost a real understanding of what it is to be politic and to have politics at the same time. Is that a is that a phenomenon, an historical phenomenon that could be described in terms of uh, 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 sort of uh, direction or causality? So, is it the case that with someone like Bismarck? who elevated the state mm-hmm. and made it great. Uh, Eric Vogel once said that uh, Bismarck made uh, the German state great and the German people small. Um, so there, there seems to be something like a, a top-down mm-hmm. causality there. On the other hand, uh, there are trends in the modern world, um, secularism, uh, uh, skepticism in the, in the moral realm, mm-hmm. that could also be kind of... Uh, more foundational causes, right? Sort of, sort of on the bottom up, sort of infusing the way we think about ourselves as human beings, and so our politics sort of reflect that. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, in is, does that resonate with how um, Professor Manon thinks about things in your own project? Oh yeah, I, I think so. Um, a, a variety of features mark the modern state. One is, as I said, it's a sort of a moral neutrality and a claim that even though we can't really be morally neutral, you're always choosing right and wrong, the claim that you are doing things just based on scientific data is somehow essential to the modern state, and the claim that no particular behavior is right or wrong, uh, and the state won't comment on matters of what we used to think of as morality. It's important to keep in mind that, as you described, skepticism that develops in the moral realm, 
David Hume and other philosophers certainly have a strong influence on that as well. Nietzsche has a sort of the ultimate skepticism of nihilism. Uh, and so those forces are in play, not directly, but indirectly. Uh, I think the notion of personal autonomy that comes up in Kant is very important. The idea that we are all autonomous agents, and that's what it is to be human, is to be an autonomous person who makes your own decisions. Kant didn't anticipate that everybody would then go off and say, well, I'll create my own reality. There's no moral reality out there. I will create the one that I want. But the thinking as it washes through the universities and and, and past the classrooms and into the streets, if you will, tends in that kind of direction. So there are a lot of very complicated historical developments and philosophical developments that all come together to to leave us with uh, political entities now that still, as I say, retain a lot of elements of the nation, but are really, in their fundamental approach to our understanding of politics, they follow Machiavelli and Hobbes, and at the end of the day, they are morally neutral and bureaucratic, and uh, they leave us really protected from our neighbors, but not part of something that's a common project, a common mm-hmm. good. It seems to me that um, if I understand you correctly about uh, Professor Manon's concept of the nation, that there is there's the nation that preserves um, the larger reality in which we find ourselves, mm-hmm. know ourselves, understand our nature, our past, our, 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 our history, of course. And then there's then there are uh, um, maybe perversions of that, some forms of nationalism sure. that actually close down uh, our understanding of our humanity in relation to the nation, in relation to exactly, the state. Yeah. So h- how do we how do we make that? Um, first of all, how, where do we, how do we see that historically, and uh, what are the what are the criteria or what are the tipping points? Maybe that's the better way to ask the question. What are the tipping points between a, a, a notion of nation that preserves our humanity and a notion of nation or nationalism that somehow truncates it? Yeah. Well, the notion of nationalism, the problem of nationalism, which we mainly associate with uh, uh, Europe in the 1930s, I think really comes about when the nation is elevated to be God or to be a divine entity which the citizens must worship rather than participate in. Uh, because then you you really can set your own rules. You can invade your neighbor. You can do whatever you feel is right on behalf of your national characteristics or whatever you want to claim for the nation. And there, and there was a tremendous religious overlay in uh, Germany. So you had yeah. the, the rallies at Nuremberg, you had yeah. the Reichskirche of the National Church. A, a real pagan kind of... Yeah. A, a pagan kind of... Uh, faith, if you will, in which the nation is elevated, and that comes in some distorted way from what Hegel thought about as the German philosopher in the early 19th century, who was thinking about the German nation, the German Protestant monarchy as the end of history. It was the final political form. Uh, So those distortions come about, I think, when people forget exactly what you described, the whole Uh, in a proper understanding of the nation. It's our political activity. It's human activity at its best. It's where we are ourselves fully human. We live the Aristotelian principle that we are rational and political animals. And by that, I don't mean that we all wear election hats or we all lobby in Washington. I mean, we're all working for a common good together. 
but the end of life, if you will, the purpose of being human, the telos of being human, end of, uh, of a person, is what it was in Aristotle and what it was what it is for Christianity, which is to say happiness. And our happiness, Aristotle notes that almost no one in this life is really happy because we don't get the chance to live the contemplative life. Christianity comes along and says there's something bigger than what's going on in this earth, and our happiness is coming fully in the next life. So when we forget that we are ordered to a larger whole, which includes the divine and God, then the nation can start to fill places and spaces that it shouldn't, that it's not intended to be. It's a human kind of a thing. Aristotle says if uh, man were the highest thing, politics would be the highest science. But it's not. Man is not the highest thing, and politics is not the highest science. In the, in the modern context where our humanity in various ways has been uh, truncated or treated, treated in a truncated way, and this, this impacts um, our view of, of, the, of the polity, right? And, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the modern state can take on an aggrandized role. One response to that would be, well, we just kind of wash our hands of the political realm. Uh, we tuck away in the corner and, you know, do, survive, you know. Yeah. Uh, but are there, are there, is, is there another kind of response? Are there, uh, are there, uh, you know, are there things to do to, to stir the, the, the better underpinnings of a, of a proper uh, political realm? I don't know. It's a great question. The modern state, I think, and I at least would argue, and I tend to agree, makes it very difficult because it, uh, it takes up a lot of space in a way, really, that nationalism did in earlier ages, or nations that adopted some form of nationalism. And the modern state tends to crowd out all other kinds of relationships, family, church, friends, everything becomes subordinate to this modern uh, guarantor of rights, of individualism. And so we wind up atomized, which a lot of people have written a lot about. Um, for what we can do in response, you know, I'm sure you've seen a lot of Rod Dreher's Benedict Option. Uh, whether or not you take that kind of approach, I think most people find still their political nature fulfilled in communities, in smaller groups where you can actually still do something. Uh, and so a lot of people turn successfully to local community as a place to go where you can participate, where you can be political, you can work for a common good, uh, and be human in that regard. And if we don't, we really lose something. We lose our humanity of something. We lose our ability to fulfill and to live what really is uh, our basic human nature as rational, social, political beings. Mm -hmm. Does um, Professor Manon comment at all on the the Catholic strain of pastoral theology um, oft repeated by the, the last several popes as the new evangelization? Um, if he does, I'm not aware of it. Mm-hmm. He has a view that politics really is the human domain. Uh, and his... So in that respect, it's, it's very Aristotelian. It's sort of the master science, right? Very Aristotelian. Yeah. Uh, and he quite consciously adopted an Aristotelian view of things when he decided that Aristotle was right. He was originally a Marxist when he was growing up, and uh, having been introduced to Thomas Aquinas as a teenager, uh, both entered the church eventually and made a very conscious turn to Aristotle, Plato, and, and classical thinking as well. So he 
when he looks around, sees politics as the human domain, and he encourages Catholics to participate in politics as Catholics. But he does not, as far as I'm aware, spend a lot of time talking about or writing about new evangelization. Mm-hmm. He's, that's not his field. That's not his domain. He wouldn't be opposed to it, I don't think. He would yeah. just say, that's not what I'm working on. It seems like the, the natural overlap is the, the desire uh, to uh, renew the culture. So if it's correct me if I'm wrong, I haven't read Manon, I'm, so yeah. I'm just going on what you've said. But in a sense, um, it sounds like Manon Manon uh, operates from the, the classic form where politics is informed by morality. Morality is founded in religion. So the the renewal, the, the cultural, the organic cultural structure there, it doesn't divide the three, but rather runs. In a sense, as a unifying mm-hmm. uh, factor through yeah. all three, but the but the religious is absolutely foundational. It is, and without the without the religious sensibility, without um, a sense of worship, without the, the practice of reverence, without real community, mm-hmm. without active Christian charity, then tremendous loss occurs. Right. That's right, and. Uh in at least the classical forms of government, the city or the empire, the political form played an important role in mediating between the people and the divine. Uh, that gets confused in the later Roman Empire as the Caesars become godlike or taken to be godlike, uh, which is a significant problem for the Roman Empire, as it turns out. In the Christian nation, as it developed, the church plays the mediating role. And so you now have a tension between politics and uh, the mediator of the divine that did not exist before the church came along. And part of the nation is, part of the development of the nation is working out how that will take place. The king is not divine until later on he becomes sort of divine as a real authoritarian kind of a king, absolute king. Uh, and that in turn develops into other political problems exactly as you, you point to. So you were really fortunate to focus in on one of the great minds of the contemporary world. And I understand, too, that you had a, a chance to study with some really top-notch minds, intellects at uh, Catholic University. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the team that oversaw your work? Yeah. Uh, my director was Dr. Brad Lewis, who was on the advisory committee here at Kena. Uh, well, right there. It's just a great accolade. Uh, right, right now, that's as high <laughs> You did the right thing, Joe. <laughs> He's a superb scholar. He's a, uh, originally a Platonist, studied the laws for his dissertation. And his work in the last few years has focused mainly on the common good. So very uh, similar set of concerns that Menant is working on. Father Robert Sokolowski, really one of the great philosophers of our day, uh, was kind enough to serve on the committee as well. He wrote a book that I worked hard on in my, uh, my master's thesis called Moral Action which I think everybody should read. It really is a terrific understanding of what it is to be human, mm-hmm. to act and to make choices, and how we make those choices. The, and he the, wrote, the, I'm sorry, the late great Father Shaw uh, had a, a short list of all the essays that any thinking uh, Catholic ought to read, and I think two out of the five or two out of the six were both by yeah. Father Sokolowski. Well, Father Shaw had a lot of reading lists and a lot of yeah. books, but the five thinkers that he chose to keep for himself after he gave his huge library away to Christendom College. Mm-hmm. He kept uh, five thinkers to himself for his books in his room 
and one of those was uh, Father Sokolowski. Nice. Also wrote a book called Phenomena- Phenomenology of the Human Person that's mm-hmm. been very well received, and right. it's a tremendous book also. So really one of the great philosophers of our day, and the third was uh, the dean of the School of Philosophy, John McCarthy, who's a fantastic teacher and philosopher. Very good. Well, that's what a great opportunity. It really was. Joe, you, you've had a very interesting uh, life, and uh, I fully expect uh, even more interesting things yet to happen. But among other things, you had a very distinguished career in the military. And among other things, you rose to um, the status of a national security advisor to the vice president of the United States. So you were working in the White House, and you were working in the White House at, at some pretty challenging times. So... Um, First of all, can you just tell our, our listeners a little bit about that? And then what I'm interested in is um, having worked in the military, having worked in intelligence and uh, at, at the top tier of national governance, I want to know if your studies have now kind of shown a light on that practical world. You've moved from the practical to the theoretical, and I wonder if, uh, in retrospect now, do you, do you have things to say that you might not have said uh, a number of years ago? Yeah, no, it's a um, it's a wonderful question. I don't know how distinguished my career was, but it was, as you say, interesting. And a lot of times, and I spent about 22 years in the Air Force and a total of about five and a half years working uh, in the White House and the Bush administration. Um, you know, both Plato and Aristotle say that you should not study philosophy until later in life because yeah. you don't have enough experience, really, yeah. to grasp it. So... I have uh, about 35, I think. Isn't that what Aristotle said? Yeah, I think that's yeah. about right. Which uh, is the, so younger than I got around to philosophy, but uh, I at least got the order right. And I've yeah. given others, my, I have some friends who studied philosophy and have gone into politics, and I've told them I'm so much luckier than you are. So, because I did my policy stuff first and government stuff first, and then I went into philosophy. It makes it yeah. a lot easier. It's the right order to do well, things. And you went into philosophy roughly in your mid-50s, right? Yeah, I started in my early 50s. Or early 50s. Uh, right. I started the formal study. I had tried yeah. to do some on my own. I always knew that I was too lazy and too yeah. uh, undisciplined to actually get very far on my own. I'm really very lucky, a series of minor miracles that made it possible. By the way, Father Shaw, whom you mentioned, told me when I was still hoping to get the uh, PhD opportunity and thought it was probably not going to be able to happen several years ago, that if I ever was able to go back for a philosophy PhD, there was only one place to go, and it was the Catholic University School of Philosophy. Right. So the fact that I was living in D.C., yeah. and as I said, several other minor miracles yeah. came out. That's but you know, you ask about the kind of influence on my thinking and all. One of the reasons I was really determined to take this avenue, if it became possible, was the conversations that I heard sitting in the White House, because it always seemed to me my field was Europe for the most part. I was working mainly on European relations. And the conversations that I heard at very senior levels, uh, the most senior levels in government, always seemed to me to have some understanding about the particular issues that were in play. But there always seemed to me to be some sort of non-communication going on. Hmm. And I started thinking more and more about why is that? What are, what's going on? And that kind of led me into thinking about deeper questions and assumptions about the world and ways of thinking the world about the world that don't come up in policy conversations, but that animate the policy conversations without the participants really realizing it. Mm-hmm. And those drive back to the more, the most basic kinds of questions can, on what it is to be human. Can you give us uh, one <clears throat> salient example? Um, yeah, is the nation worth defending? You know, is it is is a nation worth? 
having people go out and put their lives on the line for. Uh, and if you're in a post-national mindset, you think probably not so much. Mm-hmm. If you're still thinking as a nation, mm-hmm. yes, it is. It's defensible. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Um, what's um, some you know thinkers rely on uh, the Catholic framework. Uh, as a matter of you know, faith-seeking understanding. Mm-hmm. And then you get a, a modern Catholic thinker like Pascal who kind of looks at reality and, and says that the faith factor is something like a cautionary tale. So you, know, you, you risk missing out on something. You, you risk um, making the wrong uh, choice uh, if you don't give consideration to these other things. That's kind of a, a very boiled-down uh, mm-hmm. rendition of Pascal. But I wonder, what's the... Uh, the particular uh, Catholic uh, way of looking at things that perhaps you adopted in your own work? Well, um, let me sort of mention Menant again, since that's what I was working on. Menant, as I mentioned, I think, sees the best available option for us now as a political form of the nation marked by uh, Christianity. Now, that leaves us an enormous amount of latitude to act and to choose in politics, and that's what being human really is. He argues that Catholic teaching, and I think he's right, doesn't have much to say at all about particular political choices. <clears throat> we, we, I looked back through the catechism this week, and uh, it's wonderfully uh, synoptic of a lot of thinking that's gone into politics. And it also doesn't give very much specific guidance on policy or a government or uh, what government should be. It says no particular regime should be ruled out. It says we should not have collectivism. So, and it's, so the churches over, the, especially in the 20th century, argued against uh, fascism, argued against uh, communism, um, argued against many of the strands of modernism in the 19th century that have brought about the modern state as well. But the church and Catholic teaching don't have a lot to say, at least in Manon's view, and as I say, I think I echo that view, on particular policy questions. There are general principles that need to be recognized and followed. To have a good politics, and Aristotle, I think, would say to have any politics at all, you have to have a search for the common good. You have to have people participating, ruling and being ruled in an an association, a community, that seeks a common good. The church picks that up from Aristotle, Thomas Aquinas, and others. Um, You have St. Augustine arguing, I think like both Aristotle and Plato, that we're never going to get the perfect polity. We're lucky if we get a good polity. Aristotle says all government is good, even bad government is good and providential in some way. If you're lucky enough to live under a benevolent Christian prince, then you've really got a very fortunate situation, you'll have the peace that's necessary to pursue the higher things. But it's that ordering to the higher things that Christianity brings, a reminder that our politics and our political decisions, which we are free to make and argue about and choose, are not the ultimate. We have to be aware of the ultimate, and we have to be aware of the principles, solidarity, subsidiarity, common good, that should in a sense, bound our political decisions. Mm. And we have to know that our ultimate end is not political. Mm. Uh, it's not to make human political decisions. But in this life, that is what we do. Yeah. And that's so, how we move toward the transcendent. So in the, in the case of Augustine, 
who talked about the city of God and the city of man, uh, the one driven by the love of God, the other one driven by the love of self, they do have this common desire, and that is they both desire peace. Mm -hmm. But the city of God informs the search for peace in a way that the city of man cannot. Right. And so, you know, it points to the larger reality, yeah. the larger context in which to understand things. You can all, I think you can actually think of peace in Augustine as a means to an end. Mm -hmm. It opens the possibility that we can pray, mm -hmm. that we can have time to contemplate God. Uh, Aristotle, although we don't usually think of Augustine as a, an Aristotelian, Aristotle uh, thought that the purpose of the city was to live well. Not just to live, but to live well. And living well meant doing as much as you can to contemplate the highest things, the divine things. Uh, and he faults Sparta, for example, for being a city that's built only for war. So that kind of peace that comes by conquering others. Uh, he says that's not what cities should be about. That's not living well. Uh, Athens is really the city that at various times had managed to live well. That's a, that's a great distinction. And that's, that's our politic, and that's, uh, Augustine seems to pick up on that kind of a distinction. Uh, to go back to the modern state just for a minute, the great danger that a lot of the people who are now talking about the importance of the nation and Menant, and before him, Gilson, identified in the post-World War II era, is this strong desire to have this kind of, a, of an, kind of an empire to bring as much of humanity together under one notion of human rights, mm -hmm. and to make a paradise on earth. In other words, to bring the city of God to the city of man. Augustine warns you're not going to do that. And Gilson writes a book called uh, Metamorphoses of the City of God. And Menant's later book is Metamorphoses of the City, mm -hmm. which I, I doubt that's just a coincidence, but uh, he doesn't really refer to Gilson all that often. But Augustine informs Catholic thinking about the overall trajectory of history, is some things to say about politics, but really not that much. Uh, Thomas Aquinas gives us as good a view as we have in the Catholic world and probably in any world of the whole, of God's entire providential ordering of a creation, being, existence. Uh, <clears throat> and, Saint, and Thomas Aquinas doesn't have that much to say about politics in particular. He writes... On kingship, nobody's quite sure really about that. He seems to say the rule by the one is the best. And in a sense, that's certainly true in the final sense, because rule by God is the best. The one God is the best. And I think he probably had a preference for kings, given his, his day and age. But he doesn't rule out other kinds of political arrangements, and he, he offers the same kinds of principles that we still have today coming from the Catholic Church. But those, again, set boundaries. They don't tell us, have this many immigrants a year. Right. They don't tell us, do this with your health care plan. Mm -hmm. They don't really even tell us, go to war now, don't go to war then. Mm -hmm. They have principles for that. But they never remove, the church never removes the need for prudence and for us to be human in exercising prudence, seeking justice with fortitude and with moderation. Mm -hmm. uh, it emphasizes those classical virtues and brings them into the Christian tradition. And as you know, the relationship between those virtues and the individual and the individual as the political animal are absolutely intertwined in ancient thought. Uh, uh, Plato in the Gorgias and elsewhere talks about politics as about souls. That's not how we generally think about politics today, and that's certainly not how the modern state would describe its own notion of politics. Uh, it's not about souls, it's about material prosperity for the most part. And 
liberty or license to, to do whatever you will. I think with um, Aquinas and Augustine, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, um, one significant starting point for their understanding of the common good and the the impulse that needs to drive what mm-hmm. we do in the, in the practical realm is a conviction about the goodness of creation. Mm-hmm. That it start with um, a, a free, loving, creative God mm-hmm. who brings all this into existence and allows us to participate. And the, the fundamental starting point seems to be goodness. Mm-hmm. And that, that seems a whole step up from uh, the previous tradition, although it's certainly... Uh, not at odds with the notion of goodness in Plato and Aristotle it, uh, because of the, the the personal God, because mm-hmm. of the creative act, right? So if that sounds right, does that play in um, somehow or another in Manon's thinking and in your own uh, work? Yeah, certainly when Manon talks about the nation marked by Christianity, mm-hmm. um, that Christian marking includes all that you've just described. Plato and Aristotle did not really have accounts of creation. As you know, they thought the universe had always been, would always be, no beginning or ending to it. Uh, yet they get very far towards the notion of a one God. In Plato's case, the God seems to be loving in many ways. There's a, the Demiurge wants the good for people. And you may remember from the Republic, uh, when Plato is describing the education of the guardians who, who would be entirely for the interest of the city, uh, completely self-sacrificial, their education would not include a lot of the myths from Homer because those myths include the gods doing bad things. And Plato says, obviously the gods would never, Socrates in the dialogue says, obviously the gods would never do bad things. Those stories are ridiculous. So Plato has a kind of a strong notion of providence. Aristotle seems to have a weaker notion of providence, and yet he describes the force that ultimately governs the cosmos as love, as we are all in motion and change, in a sense pulled by the love of the unmoved mover, or the love that is the unmoved mover, as we want to be like the unmoved mover. Mm-hmm. Christianity brings all of these things in and enriches them. And it's not just Christianity, the Jewish tradition does that as well. I think one of the big points of revelation that Plato and Aristotle did not have comes in Exodus, where God tells Moses, you're going to have to bring the Jews out of uh, Egypt, and Moses is a little bit appalled by that. It seems almost impossible, and says, well, if I'm going to go do tell the Jews this, you're going to have to tell me your name. Well, who do I say sent me with this message that we should leave Egypt? And God says, I am. Complete simplicity. Yeah. Uh, essence and existence, identical. That gives Christians, Christian philosophers, the mark that they need to work towards. They, they have something that uh, Plato and Aristotle did not have. Augustine actually thought that Plato, at least, must have had access to the Hebrew Bible because Plato makes so much progress in directions that seem almost impossible without revelation. There's no evidence that Plato ever had access, Socrates or Plato ever had access to Jewish Bible, and there's considerable evidence that they could not have. So uh, it's an enormous tribute to them that they were able to use human reason Mm -hmm. and all that they were drawing from in terms of the the mythological tradition there to get as far as they got in Christian tradition, which includes the creation story that uh, you talk about, the goodness uh, of creation, is a a sort of a, a depiction of an amazing good 
that Plato could not have had. The form of the good can account for a lot in Platonic thinking. It's not without its problems. But the form of the good cannot account for a God who chooses to become man and die. That's something new and different. Now, on the other side of the coin, sort of, uh, is another Christian distinctive. I wanted to know what you had to say about that, what Manon might say about it, is that um, we, in the, the, the Christian development of anthropology, there's rightful consideration of kind of the, the Pauline image of, of our humanity. It's fallen. Mm-hmm. So the, the spirit's willing, the flesh is weak. And this really does seem distinctive from the, the, the previous tradition. Um, it's not that Plato and Aristotle were uh, Pollyannish about the, the prospects of politics. The, the city and speech declines to tyranny, you know, in the Republic. And, right. and as you explained earlier, Aristotle was very skeptical about, you know, the prospects of finding a truly good polity. It's hard to find good men, yeah. so it's hard to develop a, a good polity. But the Pauline notion, the, the gospel account of our, our fallen nature, this is different. This is distinctive. So how does that uh, play a role in uh, Manon's, Manon's thinking in your own? Well, I think, I think Manon... I argue that Menon uh, relies really on two thinkers. One is Augustine, the other is Aristotle. Uh, he certainly has read a great, you know, the full range of the history of philosophy, and he's influenced by a lot of other people. But Augustine obviously has this notion of original sin, and I think that has to influence Menon in his understanding of things. And Menon's a practicing Catholic, so he would certainly accept the notion of original sin. The point I was going to make, though, is... Uh, one that I think has is, is always fascinated me about the Nicomachean Ethics. At the end, in the final book, Aristotle describes the three possible wives for people. One is the contemplative wife, which is activity of the soul in accord with reason and in accord with virtue, which is contemplation of the highest things, the divine things. And that's what happiness is for Aristotle. In other words, it's philosophy as he's thinking of it, philosophy and theology, but contemplation of the highest things, the, the unmoved mover, the causes of things around us, the principles of the basic principles of things, the highest things. But he says, you know, we don't get to do that, really. We don't get that happiness in this life. That telos escapes us. We may get it in snatches and little bits. Most people don't seem to have the inclination. They have drawn somewhere else. So the best we can really do is a life of, in, of virtue in politics and seeking a common good together. And the regimes that don't have a common good in the politics, where the rulers rule just for themselves, Aristotle doesn't even think that's really politics. That's just activity in a bad political association that, as you point out, is based on the fact that the citizens lack virtue. So you have to have virtue to be happy, this contemplative life, but still almost no one really gets it, that kind of life. And that's a strange kind of a thing, because for Aristotle, every being has a telos, mm-hmm. what it's for the sake of, uh, its end of things. You could say purpose, but purpose seems to be something we choose. The end of the telos is something we have by nature. We don't get to choose it. And our end is happiness. Uh, we can choose a lot about how we go about trying to find happiness. But everything in nature that he observes has a telos. And everything always, or for the most part, reaches its telos, or you know why it doesn't, except one being, man. We're the one being that cannot fulfill, for some reason, our telos. Aristotle doesn't 
talk about that fact very much or that problem very much. There aren't many philosophers who are really able to do that. Socrates is probably the one that he has in mind as the greatest. His teacher, Aristotle's teacher, Plato, is good as well, and I'm sure he wants to be in that category himself. But we don't get there. We don't get to that activity of the soul in accord with virtue that lets us contemplate the highest things in the way that we seem intended to. That seems to be our end. It's what it is to be human, to be able to do that. And yet we don't. We're the only thing around that doesn't seem able to get to our telos. Almost almost never, and only in brief flashes. Well, original sin explains it. Why can't we do this? Because we turn toward ourselves rather than... And, and there's something about original sin, as the church says, is transmitted through the generations, and that's a mystery. We don't know why or how that happens. And then Christianity offers the solution to Aristotle's problem. It's going to be in the next life. It's going to require salvation from God. And we're not going to see it in this life. Aristotle's right. We're not going to have full uh, knowledge of God that we will have, or as full a knowledge of God as we will have, the beatific vision in the next life. That has to wait. So that, to me, is an interesting consonance between what Aristotle observed, and Aristotle was just looking around. His method of philosophy was looking around, listening to what people say and their logos and their reasoned speech and seeing what they do, and he observes this. And Christianity comes along and says, there's a reason for that problem, and the solution for the problem is salvation in Christ. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So in the Aristotelian framework, the... Um, oft described and accounted for a phenomenon of human freedom is very much in play mm-hmm. in terms of uh, you know recurrent failure to fulfill the telos, right? Yeah. And then in the in the Christian framework, there's the philosophic approach to that, and then there's added onto that what I would call the calling, right? So that that. One way we understand ourselves as human beings in the Christian framework is that God calls each of us Mm -hmm. to live a life according to his purposes. Mm -hmm. And on that platform, on that that stage in Christ, right, we discover a level of freedom, a fulfillment of of who we are that we couldn't have found otherwise. But it's it's interesting. I I don't think it's, it's describable ultimately in terms of nature. And telos, but rather uh, something else. No, I think that's right. And reality is not describable completely in terms of nature. Nature in Greek, as you know, is phusis. Mm-hmm. Aristotle wrote the book Physics, uh, and he wrote about a lot of things that occur in nature, enormous number of things that he observes and writes about in nature. The city and politics is one of those that he writes about in the book of Politics. Individual virtue, goodness, excellence. He writes about in the Nicopian Ethics, as you know. And those two kind of go together. What is it to be a good human being, a virtuous human being? What is it to have a good city a good that lives nobly and well? But he also writes the metaphysics because he believes, observes, in ways that are not directly observable, that there has to be more going on than just what he sees around him in nature. And so he describes in metaphysics uh, how we know about these most fundamental things that are beyond physics, metaphysics, beyond physics. We reason to understand them. Uh, The fundamental rule of reason, if you will, principle of reason is the principle of non-contradiction. Something can't be and not be at the same time. Mm -hmm. And then he uses that to describe uh, what we would call a divine system, if you will, that goes all the way up to an unmoved mover, which as a, the being that is thinking itself 
really, and that's why he has a weak, weaker notion of providence. The unmoved mover, which is the final divine being, and in a sense, the, the its rest is so perfect it's, uh, that it draws everything that is not at rest, everything that's changing and in motion, along with it. And, the, and that force of attraction he calls love. Mm. And so there is, uh, a, you know, the strong need to account for things that he can't see in nature. And I think that's, again, why Aristotle and Plato has the same pull, the same d- desires. You know, what we see around us in nature, says Plato, is not the full reality. It's just sort of the shadows on the wall and the parable of the cave. All we see around us is, is ref- uh, stuff that is not the purest truth. That's the form, the pure ideas, which are, in a sense, divine. And there's a god, the demiurge, in, in Plato as well, who seems to want man to, to do well. To it, thrive. Is the, but they don't, they don't get to the Christian yeah. understanding of it. That required right. revelation that yeah. they didn't have. Is, is that Aristotelian uh, notion of love as, as the, uh, the force or the draw on all things, um, is that best translated? Is, first of all, is the Greek philia? I don't know. Yeah. I don't think. I think philia is mostly friendship, but it's also love. And C.S. Lewis talks about that in one of the four loves. I think. It, I don't know the Greek. Okay. I, I think it would be more eros. Okay. Would be the concept that is more in play there. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Joe, uh, I'm so pleased for you. I'm so pleased for us that you've uh, knocked this ball out of the, the park and, and um, have started on a new uh, adventure in life. And we're looking forward to all the kinds of things that you're going to be teaching um, uh, students that you teach now, but also uh, those of us who are your fellow teachers who long to learn more about these uh, classic texts. And uh, we're, we're so grateful you're part of the Keene Academy team. So congratulations. Thank you. And I'm grateful, too, to be here and to be part of it. Uh, yeah. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Sources. We have other great episodes coming soon. So keep the conversation going and bring your family and friends. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. The producer of this podcast is Helen DeSell Zorneman. This is Andrew Zorneman, your host, For all of us at Kena Academy, thanks for listening to Sources.